0: Bringing European SaaS together was the initial premise for Talk. Even in its first year, we outgrew that proposition with attendees from over 30 countries, making it a global conference with a European heart. Talk will be returning to Dublin in October 2022, and our super early bird tickets are on sale now, saving you €400. Euros. Grab yours by visiting sastock.com forward slash sastock- 2022. most of the best things in life are about how you've s- systematically did things to decrease optionality whether it's in your personal life like getting married is the ultimate decrease in optionality having kids decreases tons of optionality but in businesses too it's really saying we're we're, gonna, we're in this box and we're never going to go out that really uh, creates a lot of clarity thinking
1: hey everyone welcome back to the sas revolution show brought to you by Sastock the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth, and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thumer, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today, and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution show, uh, Oren Hoffman, uh, CEO at SafeGraph. Welcome, Oren. Oh, thanks. I'm happy, really happy to be here. Yeah, great to have you on the podcast. Where are you uh, tuning in from? Dialing in from today?
0: San Francisco. Last, last person standing.
1: <laughs> Has everyone really left then? Or everybody in Miami or, or, or Utah?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. There's no traffic anymore. You could buy a house for three dollars. It's, uh, it's great. Yeah,
1: that <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. I, I, I must come over and check it out. It's been actually a couple of years since I've been to San Francisco. Obviously, because of the the. Uh, the pandemic but uh seems like things are getting a little bit better i know the, the delta variant and stuff still sort of lingering around but um but things are, are definitely improving it feels yep absolutely good good well oran we we're not uh here to speak about the pandemic uh, or san francisco but it's uh it's good to know where you are um tell us a little bit uh about yourself before we get into uh, the meat of the podcast who is Oren hoffman
0: Oh, sure. Uh, uh, well, so we uh, CEO of SafeGraph, we sell geospatial data and prior to SafeGraph, uh ran a company called LiveRamp. LiveRamp is the largest middleware company for marketing technology, uh, to basically connect marketing technology companies.
1: Cool. Um, and what about you as a person? Any uh, insights outside of being a CEO? Um well any any hobbies, family man, what do you do outside of San Francisco? Yeah,
0: I well, I spend a lot of time with my kids. A lot of they they uh, unfortunately they beat me at board games a lot. So that's my uh that's my my big thing. Um I spend probably too much time on Twitter. Uh and then um, you know, like you, uh, run a podcast called World of DAS D A A S for Data as a Service, where we kind of dive into data businesses.
1: Is uh is it seems among the 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 SaaS founders and CEOs that I interview that Twitter seems to be the social channel where they're most active, and is this is the case with you. Certainly,
0: it's the case with me. I, I'm I'm a big fan of Twitter. I know Twitter has its you know uh, detractors, but uh, I'm I'm a big proponent of Twitter. They're high. Good. I have high NPS.
1: Yeah, <laughs> good, good. There's um uh, definitely good strong SaaS community uh, on there. Uh, what about TikTok? Uh, uh, I'm not yet on TikTok, yet.
0: but uh, but yeah. you never know. Maybe by the time this podcast comes out, you're going to see some dance videos from me.
1: Yeah, yeah. I have I have I'm. I'm on TikTok, but I haven't quite figured out uh, like what to do or what the TikTok strategy is yet. Uh, but I'm, but I'm learning. You can Get a little but, like uh,
0: sass dance going or something.
1: I, I think so. There's a lot of pointing <laughs> up on the screens. So there's a lot. There's a lot of business content on there. Um, but uh, but there's a certain style of it. But uh, uh, but that that's for another day. And so. Um, so good to know uh, a little bit more about you and your uh, the, the the co-founder of of Safegraph. Or, Correct. Yeah. Um, and where did you meet your co-founder?
0: Oh uh, well, we we had worked together at LiveRamp before.
1: At LiveRamp, okay, good yeah. stuff. Um, that definitely helps. Uh, yeah. And so, why did you why did you found uh, Safegraph?
0: Well, the, the the big reason is we're worried that uh, it, you know as data fuels more and more innovation we were worried that data uh, is behind a lot of closed doors and it's often gated away. And in many cases, you could you could make a case that a lot just 12 companies control most of the world's data. Um, and that's a world where you're just going to see a lot less innovation because it's hard to access the data. And then you also where like most of the rents that innovation will accrue to those 12 companies. And that's not a world anyone wants to live in, including the people that work at those 12 companies. They don't want that world either. And so we really want to build uh, a, a true data business, a data service business where uh, anyone can get access to data. Just like today, anybody can get access to compute. All you need is a credit card, and a bit of technical knowledge to get access to compute. It should be the same thing for data. And then you know, data is very, very big and you know, we're a tiny startup, so you can't do everything. So we're specifically focused on data about physical places. And if you think of data, there's probably four types of data that, that most, you know, most 95% of data is really about four categories. It's either about people, places, that's where SafeGraph is, organizations like companies, or about products, right? So 95% of data is about one of those four things. Sometimes they're crossed with each other, or often they're crossed with time or with price, et cetera. But we're clearly in the data about places bucket.
1: And so you you, you come up with the idea and like, so you and your co-founder, uh, you, you know, want to move on from LiveRamp to Safegraph is the, the the new project. How did you turn that idea, you know, into the product? What was the the, the story about uh, how you went about this?
0: Well, we, we actually started with a different idea, and um, and then our goal was to buy data about physical places. Uh, we figured that was more of a solved problem already, and um, and so we we went out to buy. There's there's thousands of companies that sell data about physical places. Um, the market's been around for 50 years plus, so we just assumed it was already a solved problem. We could buy the data about physical places. And what we found is that there was no data source that we could find that was more than 50% accurate. Uh, and we realized that's because all, all pretty much all these companies were selling to one of two audiences. They're either selling into marketing, and if you're 50% accurate in marketing, that's actually amazing. Like it's just so much better than throwing darts, and it's, it's going to perform really well or they were selling to like individuals, like an individual broker or person. And then that person can disambiguate the data themselves easily. We wanted to buy it as like a data science and machine learning use case, in which case you're going to like build models off that data. And then if you have errors in the data, the the errors compound really, really fast. And so in a a kind of data science use case, you need data to be at least in the 90s percent accurate and in many cases in the high 90s and sometimes over 99 percent accurate to actually work really well. And so we thought there was this new burgeoning use case of, of working with data science teams. And so we, we kind of pivoted our original idea to focus on, on data about physical places, but like a high accuracy piece of data.
1: And who, who are your customers? Who's the ICP? Who's, who's buying the, uh, the product? So almost 100% of our customers
0: are data science teams, uh, but they live in in in, in, in almost any industry you can think of, from banking to logistics to telco to retail to uh, you know to government like transportation departments to a whole bunch of other types of uh, a whole bunch of different types of uh, use cases. But generally, they're either data science teams or machine learning teams. They're taking our data as an ingredient, and data is just an ingredient. And then they're building some sort of model off of it. So we like to t- say we're selling this super high quality butter to pastry chefs. And then they're taking our butter plus many, many other important ingredients. And then they're making these like delicious croissants. But as you know, like just because you buy high quality butter does not mean you're going to get a delicious croissant at the end of it. It's it's an important part of that. But there's still the ingenuity of the actual innovator that uh, that goes into whether that croissant becomes really delicious or not.
1: Often at the early stage, when a, a SaaS company or data company, you know, identifies its ICP, and then they kind of target maybe a specific market, like other SaaS companies, right? Yeah. But, but here, you say anybody, any data scientist, uh, you, you know, is, is a customer at any company. So is that both a challenge and an opportunity because you're really kind of your market is huge. Yeah, that's right. It's both.
0: It's both a feature and a bug. Yeah. Um, so the feature is there's a huge market. We could sell to many, many different industries that are out there. Uh, the bug is that it, it's not like we're just selling like CRM software to dentist office, and you know who all yeah. the dentist office are and you can even you know okay it has to be dentist office over 5 people you know it, and then you have like a very very targeted place that you sell to and there's kind of a repeatable go to market system in our case like when we sell to the insurance industry it's very it's very different than when we sell to private equity which is very different than we sell to logistics companies which is very different than we sell to retail which is very different than when we sell to government agencies and so each of those go to market motions have a very very different flavor to them uh, and, um, and you know different marketing, different product marketing, sometimes different, different other areas of expertise. Sometimes they want different types of products. Uh, so you know, if you think of data as rows and columns, you might want different rows or different columns or different geographies, et cetera. Uh, so it, it is a challenge uh, to go do that. The, the problem with selling data in general is that there's still not that many buyers for data because there's just not that many super sophisticated data science teams that can buy external data. Uh, there's probably 10 times more buyers today than there were three years ago. So the number of buyers has gone up dramatically, but it's gone up from a very, very small number. So our bet when we started this company was that the number of buyers was going to increase quite a bit. And it's increased 10X roughly since we started selling. Um, and uh, But it's still a very, very small number. And our bet is that it will continue to increase uh, rapidly. Uh, but you know, the, if you think of the number of retailers that can actually buy external data, it's very small. Even hedge funds, there's eleven thousand hedge funds in the United States. There's maybe a hundred that are active buyers of alternative data. So we're you know we're talking about one percent or so of hedge funds that can actually buy data today. Now there's maybe another thousand that are making the investment to buy alternative data. And you could see over the next five years, the ability. And so, and that's the same of any industry, whether it be retail or logistics or real estate, or you just go down the list.
1: So what was the launch story given, you know, you've got quite a, you've got data scientists, so you know narrow, sort of like a uh, specific role, a broad market. How did you launch and go to market uh, with SafeGraph and get those first customers?
0: Well, uh, you know, we we did what a lot of startups do. We just started emailing random companies and asking if they might find it interesting. Um, and our very first customer uh, was uh, uh, one of the largest telcos in the United States, and um, and so that we got lucky. And uh, they're extremely smart. They have a huge, you know, data science team of like a thousand-person data science team. Uh, they uh, they're a very very demanding customer. They needed us for many, many different things from network planning to marketing and advertising to a whole bunch of other like really, really core things to their business. And uh, they were not satisfied with the current vendors that were selling them data about places. So they took a bet on us. Uh, They, they, and you know, our, our product today is, is probably a hundred times better than it was when they bought our product back then. So they took a bet and they took a bet that we were going to continue to improve it. Uh, and they're still one of our favorite customers to work with uh, today. And and they were our first customers for six months. And we would literally like go there and we'd sit with their data science team and ask them why, the, you know, what was, and then we'd see the errors and they were very, and every time you'd see like a bug or a problem or you know data, really, if you're selling data, what, what you're really selling is facts. And the most important thing in these facts is that they're true. Um, and you know and especially when you're selling the data science teams and so every time you and you know we have we sell billions and billions of facts that can't all be true, but it's really embarrassing when even one fact is not true right And so we were being embarrassed all the time in the early days. but luckily we had a great first customer that worked with us that helped us that made us got better that would yell at us when we get things wrong and you really need those demanding customers. Um, to to make sure that your, your data is better. So I would say we got a little lucky break as in our first customer being a global, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world um, uh, and to really like um, help us focus on our product.
1: We, we I, I used to sell to telcos in a past life, um, like uh, enterprise software platforms and enter into like two year RFPs yeah. and get to that final stage and then you lose out to, you know, you come second or something like that. Um, with a, a fantastic, obviously getting a, you, you know, a, a, big customer early on, how long was the sales cycle for the, for the Yeah, telco? so it was
0: really interesting. So they, had, they, we, um, somehow we were, we started to work on this product and, uh, but we were not anywhere near to finish. And they, uh, we found out that this telco was, was had an RFP process going on. And so we, were, we were probably the last place in there and we just got lucky and we were maybe a, you know, a, a 15 person company at the time or less. And uh, so they let us in to the thing, and there were there were eight other companies. There's total nine companies in the RFP. One of the great things that this telco did, which I thought was, and I still it's still pretty rare. So what they did is they um, they they had a ranking system internally of 40 different criteria, and then they didn't tell you who the other vendors were, but they told you after they evaluated all the data where you felt for each of the 40 criteria where How good were you from one to nine of each of the forty things, right? Which is amazing feedback. So there there were there were a bunch of things. we ended up winning the RFP. So there are a bunch of things we were one on. there were some things we were number two on. but there were also a bunch of categories we were like eight, and nine on, too, right? So yeah. it was a great, it was a, it was really great to get this feedback as a roadmap of where we can improve our product. Um, and what was crazy is even though we've only we were only working on this thing for a year, you know, re- a year prior, we still, they did a very, very rigorous study, and even with a terrible product, I mean, you know, if you think of our product was uh, uh, three, four years ago, it was, it was a pretty bad product. But even with a, even with a product that we weren't proud of, we still came out on top uh, then. And so they, they had, they, they realized that, I mean, they realized we were going to improve at a rapid rate because even within the process, you know, we, they would see different versions of our product because we, you know, we, let's say we were releasing every month. And they saw how those versions were dramatically better than than the ones from the prior months. So they they were able to, to to take a better. But again, we got lucky. They already had a process going. We didn't have to convince them to go do it. They already had a very, very sophisticated team working on it. They had a very, very detailed RFP going. They knew how to evaluate this data, which most companies don't. So they don't even know how to do the evaluation of the data. They did a bunch of smart things to see, can't can the demo. The problem with with data is you could say, Hey, I want this type of data and then they can have like a humans go look at it. Right. And you know, give it to me in a month. So what they did, which was very smart, is they said, we're going to, we're going to send you an email at 9am on Wednesday by 11am on Wednesday, we want all the data, right? There's no way to can that data. And, you know, and so, um, and most of the vendors couldn't even like cut the data during those two hours. Like they didn't even have to process internally to go do that. And many of them asked for like multiple week delays. So We didn't even know that was, that was allowed. So we just like cut the data in like one second and sent it over to them right away. Uh, so I also, they, we also got the data to them the fastest too, because we didn't realize you were allowed to do delays or that was even like a thing. So it's a, it's a, you know, we, we, it's g- really great to have a first customer at LiveRAM. Um, we, we did our first retail customer was Walmart um, and Walmart is an extremely demanding customer and they would like call us and scream at us and they would, you know, and they, they made our product so much better because they really, really cared and they really wanted us to succeed. And those are the customers that you, that you, that you live for. And those are the customers that can really make a company.
1: Is that there's something, um, absolutely true. But so to be, I guess, mindful when you have these bigger customers and you hear about it a lot that then they start to dictate perhaps the roadmap a little bit and say, can you develop this feature and this feature? you, you know what 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 happens in in that case do you yeah do you, that's you um
0: that these are always these hard questions <clears throat> and there's no easy answers right so um and and so so you know you you have to make you you have to try to figure it out like is this something that's just a snowflake for this particular customer because in which case uh, it doesn't make sense to go do it. Um, and it may make the customer a little bit unhappy that you're not going to do this snowflake, but they also understand, like they want you, they want you to be around, they want you to be successful and they want you to sell to other people. Or is this something that they're asking actually something that a lot of other people really would want? Um, and it's actually, it is something on the roadmap. And even though maybe we were thinking of doing this particular thing two years from now, and they want it like two months from now. Um, maybe it actually does make sense to reorient the the roadmap because so many now that you're you get into it, you realize actually so many other customers might want something similar. Now when you only have one customer, it's hard to do that. So you do have to be out there talking to the market. When you get to a hundred enterprise customers, much, much easier to make those decisions because now you can go ask your customers. If somebody asks for something, you can go ask everybody else. and if 15 other people raise their hand, like, oh, this does seem valuable. Um, maybe I should prioritize this particular thing.
1: given, given that uh, you run, I guess a a, a data business. so like um, why you're obviously understandably uh, passionate around the topic. well why why do companies need to be data businesses, do you think?
0: Well, companies don't need to be data businesses. so and and data historically has been a bad business because there just isn't a lot of there weren't a lot of buyers for data. Um, so, the number of buyers, as I mentioned, is increasing dramatically, but there's still not a ton of buyers. Like, if you sell, if you want to sell data to retailers, there's, there's maybe 12 buyers or something to buy your, to buy data right now. Now, in the future, there might be 1,200 buyers, but that, that might be pretty far in the future. So, you really, you really uh, have to understand like the data business. Uh, the first, if you're a data science team, the first thing you're going to do is, is evaluate your own internal data before you buy external data, and so and most of these companies produce a lot of great internal data, um, and th- that internal data could be around pricing, it could be around um, supply chain stuff, it could be around um, how do you pay your employees or how it re- employee retention. I mean, there's so much good data that every single uh, company produces, and so there's so there's a lot of low hanging fruit for a data science team just to work on your own internal data. At some point. You start to you, you, you start to juice everything that you can uh, from that orange on the internal data. and then it and, and you, there's a little bit of an asymptote that you reach. and then it makes sense to start investing. Only then does it make sense to start investing in external data. So with a four person data science team, maybe you should be focused 100% on internal data. As as you as you've had that data science team for a while, and you start to grow that data science team, you grow the capabilities, you grow the tool sets. Then bringing in that external data starts to make a lot of sense.
1: What about being in terms of like being being um, data driven SaaS company? Right, uh, I guess uh, Safegraph uh, is it, uh, a SaaS business, SaaS model, the data business. How do you use data to going kind of run uh, and drive your own business?
0: Oh, how do we use like data internally? Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, uh, well, um, I mean, probably not too different from, all, you know, any any other company that's out there. Uh, you know, it, it, in startups, it's, it's sometimes hard to use data to actually figure out what you're going to do, uh, because uh, a lot of it is really b- having a belief of what the future is going to be. Uh, and you can use some data to help you predict the future. But a really good startup is where I have a belief of the future that most people disagree with. Right. Um, and, and, and when we were talking about most people we were really talking about most smart people disagree with, not most dumb people. Right. Um, and if most smart people disagree, they're also seeing data. They're also collecting data, but yet they still disagree with where the future is going. And, and they may even disagree with where the past has gone. Uh, so those are those are sometimes the best startups where everyone even disagrees with what happened in the past and the present. And then, of course, they're definitely going to disagree with what happens in the future. Uh, so there's, there's a bit of data analysis that goes into any any startup, but there's also some sort of insight that you need to have that most of the other market doesn't have about where the future is going.
1: Founders' compensation is something that you, you've written about, uh, and it's often not written about uh, that that much um so uh why don't you share a little bit about your your opinions uh, uh on this sure one one of the things that's happened for founders
0: especially for founder ceos is usually once they're at the company let's say for five years maybe that a five-year vest up front um then they become a lot they may have some other grants that that they start to get but they usually are 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 compensated at a level which is way lower than if they got replaced by an external CEO um, and and usually not just like 80% of the level of our external CEO, but usually somewhere in the neighborhood of like 20, 25% of uh, external CEO. So we're talking like an external CEO would be five four to five times the price of like the founder CEO. Um, and so the, the question is, does that make sense uh, for a company? And, and you can make a case that the founder CEO should not be compensated 100% of an external CEO, but, um, but maybe they should be at 80% or 70%. And so I, I think people, the, the, really the question is, what percent should they be of this external CEO? And it's a hard thing to, um, uh, it's, it's a very hard thing for people to get their head around. Because of course this this founder CEO has a lot of stock in the company. Um, but you really what you have to look at is like the go if they got hit by a boss, right, then they still have that stock in the company, or at least their family still has the stock in the company. And so really what you're talking about is like the go forward compensation of how to keep them motivated uh, et cetera. Et cetera. Uh,
1: how much is um, so you're a series B at the moment with uh, with Safegraph, Is that right? Correct. Uh, how much have you raised uh, to
0: date? Uh, we've raised sixty-one million.
1: Sixty-one million. Uh, 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 very nice. And, uh, and, and with regards to that, in terms of uh, those that are listening that have raised sort of capital, <clears throat> can you share, uh, you know, sort of insights and startups and founders, and perhaps what the best way is to allocate capital and your thoughts uh, around that <clears throat> for those that are listening?
0: Well, it's very difficult to. Um, I, I think there are things that are working that you want to invest more in, and those those are the very very simple things to do. That uh, you're selling well, um, and uh, you have these um, enterprise um, AEs that are selling well, and so you should hire more AEs or something, right? Um, uh, or your your paid marketing is doing really well. Um, you should increase your budget for paid marketing or something. So so those are those are the easier investments, and those are usually these investments about how to like compound. Things that are already—it's you know, kind of the one-to-end compound things that are already doing well, and then you—you you obviously can't overinvest in those areas. You can't—you know—if you can't go from 10 to a thousand AES in a month or something, um, and uh, but but you can start to do that in an, often in a linear fashion the harder thing to figure out is these zero to one investments so you want to layer on something very new a new type of product or a new type of go to market strategy or some sort of like something that's new and has a high likelihood of failure um, you can't put like 100% or you probably shouldn't put 100% of your budget into that particular bet and so you have to figure out how to size that bet in appropriate way and that bet might be, um, you know, there's there's people working on it. Maybe there's other. Um, if you think of the bet in dollars, there's maybe compute. There's maybe other things you have to do. Um, and then there's there's some sort of opportunity cost if you do this, you're not doing some other type of thing. And so, getting more rigorous about how you decide what where to put place your bets and how you should size those bets is something that um, that is a very very difficult thing. There's no easy answer. Um, you're always going to be wrong you're either going to size it too high or too low, right? Like you're never going to be right about it, but over time you can get better, you can hone it. Uh, And there's certain data that you can use to to help you. But in the end, there's also some analysis and sometimes you just have to make a call. Uh, And the hard thing is how do you unwind these bets? So how do you know when you should, if you're investing a million dollars in a year in a particular bet, how do you know when, if it's not going to plan, how do you unwind it? Like, and do you go from a million to zero? Do you go from a million to 500,000? Do you, um, do you keep the bet going, but then you, you just feel like you didn't execute and you change the people who are working on that bet. Right. So there's all these different, um, there's all these different decisions that one has to make over
1: time. That's uh, great advice. Uh, uh, thanks for sharing. And if we, if you look at, uh, I guess from when you started Safegraph to now, um, what are some of the, 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 key learnings from your experience to date in growing the business that if you could distill it down into, you, you know, a few points, uh, and share with the audience?
0: Well, I, I would say the biggest, the biggest learning I've had in my career is, is, is do everything possible to avoid good opportunities. And I think most smart people, um, they get trained early on to, to, uh, to differentiate between good opportunities and bad opportunities. And I think early on in your career, if you're 21 years old or something like that, like it makes a lot of sense because most of the opportunities you see are bad. And so you want to select the good opportunities that are out there. As you get a little bit more successful, um, you're going to see more and more good opportunities. And what you really need to do is wait for the great opportunities. Because if you just work on the good opportunities, you're going to hit a local maxima uh, and you're just never going to advance at the rate that you need to. And this is very, very difficult to do so. And, and a lot of great opportunities are kind of disguised as bad opportunities, um, whereas most good opportunities are get, get a little bit more obvious over time. Uh, so you really, and, and th- this is true for whether it's companies, whether it's entrepreneurs, whether it's just like in any individual who's out there. Like the more you advance in your career, the more you should be focused on great opportunities.
1: Also, a uh, uh, great advice there for uh, for listeners. Um, well, what about in terms of <clears throat> your learnings uh, as a CEO, how do you how do you learn? Um, like as as you go, is it through you know on the job, uh, through a support network, through other CEOs, mentors, coaches? Um, it, yeah. All of the above.
0: Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think you you have to constantly be wrong. You have to constantly. Uh, um, and one of the things I do is I write a lot, um, and so I, whether I blog a lot externally, but I also write a lot internally, and that helps you kind of like at least uh, court, you know put your thoughts on paper. It really helps you understand something. Um, and one of the things that's interesting is is how often I change my mind. There's something I may have wrote about four years ago that I completely different, disagree with, whether it's a recruiting strategy or some other type of thing. Uh, and I could change my mind because, like, I literally changed my mind about that thing, or the facts have changed. And maybe that was the right strategy four years ago, but that's no longer the right strategy to today. Um, I think the other way to really learn um, is to do everything, is to really do everything possible to put yourself in a box. So the the smaller the box, the more you can master that particular box. And I think this is something that's very very difficult for smart people to do and a lot of entrep- a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of smart people are really about increasing optionality and their whole life has been I'm going to go get an MBA which is about increasing optionality or I'm going to do these all these things in my life to increase optionality and i think most of the best things in life are about how you've s- systematically did things to decrease optionality whether it's in your personal life like getting married is the ultimate decrease in optionality having kids like decreases tons of optionality but in businesses too it's really saying we're we're, gonna, we're in this box and we're never gonna go out not we're we're thinking we're not gonna go outside it for the next year but literally saying the word never we are never going to go outside this box. We're going to stay in this box. We're going to confine ourselves to be in this box. Um, that really uh, creates a lot of clarity thinking because it really it, it limits your learning space of what you have to really, really focus on. And it also just eliminates a lot of mental distractions as well. So for SafeGraph, we have a very, very clear box. Like we're selling data just facts we don't do anything else we don't do analytics we don't do software we don't do visualization we don't do services we just sell facts about physical places that's it uh and that's all we're going to do ever uh and so we really really try to hone that into that box and and then your your learning moves much much faster
1: definitely uh staying focused on on that one thing um i think uh also great, great advice and, uh, and strategy for uh, for growth, becoming the best in the world at, at that one thing. Um, speaking of which, one thing is a uh, is a book that I read uh, in the past, pretty good business book. But what's your favorite uh, business book, if you have one?
0: I think the best business book that I've ever read is Zero to One by Peter Thiel, um, and uh, it is the, it is so well written. It's, it's easy to understand. You can read it very, very, very quickly. It's got profound insights into business and strategy and also life. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's really interesting that it, it was written by someone who isn't a, a, a business book author or anything. And this is the only, you know, it's just kind of a book he wrote on the side. But it's just incredibly easy to read and 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 incredibly profound
1: yeah one one i should probably go back to i think probably read it when it first came out which was however many years ago uh, but probably time to uh, dust off the cover and read yeah again
0: yeah I, I certainly encourage everyone who joined safecraft to read that book uh and, and most people actually have already read it by the time they come uh, again it's a quick read so you can read it very very fast which is nice um, and, um, and it's easy, it's it, while the concepts are profound, they're really easy to understand.
1: Where can people find you, uh, online, uh, and Safegraph too, if they're, if they're interested?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you know, the, you, they can check if they're super into, if they're a data nerd and they're super into data, they can check out our podcast, world of DAS, D-A-A-S. Uh, and then I, as I mentioned, I'm a prolific person on Twitter. So Orin, A-U-R-E-N on Twitter. Come see my napkin graphs, or you know, other 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 random usings that I have.
1: Awesome, good stuff. Uh, well, uh, Oren Hoffman, uh, CEO Safegraph. Uh, thanks so much for for taking the time out today to share with the the SaaS Revolution Show and the SaaS.audience. audience. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learn something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming sasdoc conferences around the world.